loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Horror Queers. I'm Trace Thurman. And I'm Joe Lipset. And this is Horror Queers, the podcast about gay things, horror things, and everything in between. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome an American screenwriter, columnist, and actor known primarily for his work within the horror genre and the world of TV movies. After getting his start writing for the underground horror film magazine Ultraviolent, he wrote the travelogue for Peaches Christ's film All About Evil. Around the same time, he had bylines in such publications as The Huffington Post, Vice, and Tube Filter. He wrote and starred in the anthology horror film Tales of Poe and the Italian horror homage Flesh for the Inferno, and has written and acted in many independent horror films since. We may also see his name pop up as the screenwriter of various Christmas TV movies like A Christmas Reunion and A Christmas in Vermont. He is also an important influencer of gay Twitter with over 5,000 followers, and you can currently hear him as the host of the Dead for Filth podcast. Please join us in welcoming the one and only Michael Verratti. Thank you for having me. Well, what an intro. Did I get all that right? You did. Uh, I'm assuming, though, that you, uh, well, I, <laughs> I, I have fallen out of my seat. I'm so overtaken. No, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming that you visited the Wikipedia page. That oh, yeah. No, that's all straight from Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Which, did you write that? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I, someone wrote a Wikipedia page, and I'm deeply fascinated by it. I mean, all the information's accurate, but like they made a point to have an entire section that's like, here's how many Twitter followers he has, which is horrifying <laughs> in some way. I, that is why I said that, because I was like, wait, wait, wait. It's literally a section that just says gay Twitter, and then it goes, over 5,000 followers. Yeah, and I don't know <laughs> what that's about. I'm like really interested, like, who was the person who wrote this that was just like, yeah, this this not only is worth mentioning, but it's going to get a whole subsection on Wikipedia. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not mad about it. I'm just kind of interested. In I also that. copied your format on your podcast. Oh, the, the greetings and welcome. I liked it. <laughs> I actually thought Trace was just sucking up to you, but this is so much more entertaining. No, I'm not going to like copy it and rip it off and then just like pass it off. I'm obviously going to comment on the fact that I jacked it. <laughs> Euphemisms. <laughs> well, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a not intended pun. So uh, anyway, yeah, <laughs> welcome to Horror Queers. Yeah, I'm, ex I'm stoked. I can't wait to talk to you guys about this movie. Which, uh, Joe, what movie is it? We're talking about Psycho 2, which is not directed by Anthony Perkins, like I said it was last week. Well, if you would have listened to the episode that I edited, you would know that I cut that part out. Nah. <laughs> but Anthony Perkins did direct Psycho 3, so it's he, in the neighborhood. He did, which I actually watched for the first time last night directly after re-watching Psycho 2. It's bonkers. Like, I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but Psycho 3 no. is like a wackadoo movie. I'm always thrilled to see Mommy Dearest's own Diana Scarwood pop up in things. So, well, Joe, have you seen Psycho 3? I have not. Okay, so we'll, just really quickly, I'm just going to say, it has to be intentional that he cast Diana Scarwood <laughs> in that movie. It's bonkers. It is insane. Honestly, when, when I finished watching it, I was like, we probably should have just covered Psycho 3 instead of Psycho 2, even though I think Psycho 2 is a better movie. Well, there's always later days. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But, um... It's crazy. It's weird. I want to watch it again. So let's let's put that on our list. Fair enough. I'll make a note. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we are discussing Psycho 2 today, which uh, was released on June 3rd, 1983, the week after 
Return of the Jedi opened in theaters. So bold move by Universal, A, not just for being a summer release, but for releasing it right after the finale of a Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> distributed by Universal with a runtime of 113 minutes, which uh, flies by, and a budget of $5 million, which uh, roughly today you're looking at about a $13 million budget. Uh, it did open in number two behind Return of the Jedi with $8.3 million and went on to gross $34.7 million, which adjusted is $99.5 million. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked, shocked by that. Well, I mean, if you think about it, this is a sequel to a beloved film. I mean, I guess the biggest thing is just that it's been 23 years since the original. But you could say if people thought the original was great, they would have that curiosity factor. And there's the book tie-in as well. I guess I always think about like, you know, I feel like it's a modern thing with all these sequels and reboots coming out, you know, decades after their original. But was Psycho 2 the first of its kind in that respect, where it was such like a long gap between the original and also such a prolific original and the sequel? That's that's an interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I was thinking while this movie was playing out how there is quite an interesting parallel to how Halloween 40 utilized that length of time as part of the prestige in its release. Mm. I mean, obviously, there was the many Halloween sequels in between that. But there is something to be said about trying to maintain a singular storyline decades after the original that kind of plays in here as well. Also, Halloween has always, to me, been a spiritual progeny of Psycho. So I, I always am interested to kind of compare the two. 100 mm-hmm. percent and joe and i differ a little bit on our opinions of halloween h4o i do like it and while i'm aware of its flaws i think he's a little bit less warm on it that being said i do think that psycho 2 is a better movie than halloween 2018 oh my god yes obviously <laughs> well, <yeah>. joe <laughs> wait that's not that's not surprising to come from you but as someone who again i liked halloween i mean you know it's fine well this has a competent script and yeah you know yeah. what? We're not talking about. We're not H4. talking about Halloween. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so <laughs> listeners, um, if you if you've never seen Psycho Two, which honestly we gave you an, a week's notice, so it's really on you if you didn't do that and you're listening to this. But you should go and watch it because it's a movie that I saw for the first time probably five years ago, and I didn't think I, I assumed it was going to be bad because honestly, I had seen Psycho the original, and I'd seen Psycho four on TV at some point in my childhood, and so that's Dear. the only yeah I, I never <laughs> seen two or three, um, four from what I remember, isn't great. But I could be wrong. Maybe it holds up. It's kind of like V.C. Andrews. Whenever I think of 4, there's something kind of like oddly molesty about it because of just like the, this intense like psychosexual attraction that happens between Henry Thomas and Olivia Hussey because they try and go back and give you the backstory of Norman. Oh, it's an origin story, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Half and half. But but also, I love the Olivia Hussey connection, though, because you could also argue that Black Christmas was heavily influenced by Psycho. And so for her to be in that movie and course psycho 4 as norma bates of all things is pretty interesting for sure Mm -hmm. but yeah so i I always assumed this movie was gonna be bad and i feel like i'd heard it was bad but it's kind of great and while it's not as revolutionary or as creative as psycho i mean it's a solid four-star movie for me (laughs) you know what's interesting about this movie is it is a tricky endeavor, right? To not only follow Psycho, but to assume that you're going to make a sequel to a Hitchcock film at mm-hmm. all. Because Alfred Hitchcock kind of occupies a monolithic place in the pop culture zeitgeist in the way that 
there are some filmmakers that it seems a it, it just it, it would be absurd i guess to suppose that you have any stake in the claim of, of trying to improve upon or expand upon the work of someone like a Hitchcock or an Orson Welles or like you know some of these people that we hold to a high degree just for their place in cinema history and the fact that they waited so very long to do this and then they did and in effect actually turned out a relatively competent movie more so is just an interesting history and uh I saw this movie a, a while ago, and I had mentioned before we went on the air, and you had mentioned in the intro that I had done some writing for Peaches Christ. In addition mm-hmm. to doing the travel log when uh, she toured her movie, I used to just write like odds and end uh, content for her webpage to kind of keep horror fans coming back as well. And we had hatched this idea at one point to do a franchise retrospective of Psycho. And I watched all three of the sequels in like quick succession sometime like around 2009 or so. And... What was wild about it is I kind of still, into this day, think of the three sequels as sort of their own trilogy and the original movie. It kind of informs them, but it's like it's its own entity. So I guess that even I have yet to navigate and negotiate the Hitchcock connection of it all, even though it's there. Like, I kind of love these movies, but I think of two, three, and four as their own thing where the original still sort of stands alone. And that's just my own film nerd neurosis, I think. I can maybe understand that, but Psycho 3 is very, um, I can feel the connection between Psycho 2 and Psycho 1. Like, it, it, honestly, I could double feature them, and I, I think it works. It, it Obviously, you know, I love the opening of Psycho 2, where it's the black and white Universal logo, and then, of course, it it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but it opens with the shower scene from the first movie. And right. it's a pet peeve of mine when a movie that is homaging or referencing another movie if it makes me think about a better movie and makes me want to watch a better movie. And this movie took a big gamble by doing that in the beginning. Luckily it pays off because everything after the shower scene like works out. And they even also homage the shower scene again, <laughs> like right. halfway through with Meg Tilly, but psycho three, their bread was buttered. Yeah. 100%. I mean, again, this is like 1983, like, you know, whatever, but psycho three feels completely different. And granted, as Joe mentioned, directed by Anthony Perkins, and it stylistically doesn't even feel similar to the first two movies. Whereas I, I think the first one and the uh, and the second one, even though it's not Hitchcock doing the second one, there is a connection there where you, it feels stylistically similar. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I would buy that. So yeah, reception was, again, not as negative as I thought. I mean, it's kind of hard to pull from Rotten Tomatoes with a movie like this. You know, anything pre, I want to say 1990, you know, you're kind of going with limited resources here but 61 percent of rotten tomatoes but a 53 percent from audiences whereas with metacritic you're looking at a 54 out of 100 with a user score of 7 out of 10 so flip-flop there but either way i think that people were okay with this at the time even ebert well actually <laughs> actually ebert preferred three to two which kind of boggles my mind i can see it you know the thing about roger ebert is he always was very, very hard on genre films, which I always found very fascinating considering his connection as a screenwriter to mm-hmm. the work of Russ Meyer and the fact that he wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Like, mm-hmm. I was all, as much as I respect Roger Ebert's place in the pantheon of film criticism, yeah, it was always interesting to like read a review that he would write for something like Friday the 13th and he would be like, this is garbage and sleaze. I'm like, you literally made a movie about a girl group that's tripping balls with some, like, gay, satanic cult leader. Like, 
you know, let's let's remember where we come from. But when he would tap back into it, he tapped back into it in ways that were very revealing to the things that Ebert wanted out of a cult film. And part three was really fucking weird. Um, Can I swear on this? I guess I should have asked before. Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. We're explicit. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, coming from Dead for Filth, where I just am like always saying outrageous stuff, I need to remember to be nice in other people's homes. Cunt, fuck, Um, pussy, circle jerk, masturbate. (laughs) But yeah, you, you, uh, you watch that movie and it's sort of like this gay phantasmagoria of like that opening scene of psycho three with the nuns and just like the mm-hmm. light filtering and it's kind of russ Myrie or like that whole scene where, the, where jeff Fahey's he's like just sweating sexually in the dark i'm like okay, with the, I can hold, see holding the lamps over his penis the first line of psycho three is like god is dead or there or something like that i mean it woke me up <laughs> i was like what yeah. <laughs> it, it definitely delves into like a psychedelic feeling that you know hitchcock's and in, in part two don't so i can kind of see ebert revealing his hand like he's like I, if, I, if you're gonna go weird get really weird and i think that he was into that yeah yeah i always got the impression that ebert was sort of desperate to shy away from genre stuff to make sure that he was being taken seriously but then he would occasionally respect the really oddball off-the-wall options occasionally siskel was definitely harder on violence in cinema but i'm ebert giving his zero stars to the fucking texas chainsaw remake and wolf creek but then giving three stars to devil's rejects i'm just like dude what what are we doing inconsistent a little bit (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um just a quick rundown of kind of um you know who we're talking about here directed by richard franklin i admit i have never seen a single one of his films but um he's most notably uh remembered for patrick which i have seen the remake of that movie so i clearly need to see the original road games oh you've not have you not seen road games that movie is awesome the original patrick uh well, Patrick is, but also Road Games. Did you mention Road Games? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, no, Patrick, Road Games, Link, and Cloak and Dagger are my big pulls for Richard Franklin. I've never seen any of those movies. Is Cloak and Dagger the TV show, or is that an no. older movie? It's an older movie. No relation okay. to the Marvel property. Okay. Yeah, it's about a older man played by Dabney Coleman. Yes. And, and a young kid who they're like a spy team. I think I'm very like loosely paraphrasing what Cloak and Dagger is about. It used to play on the Disney Channel. Like, that's the only rate, way that I know what that movie is, because, like, Disney played it every now and then. Okay. Right. I like the idea of a buddy cop comedy with, like, a middle-aged man and, like, a punk kid. <laughs> Dabney Coleman, of, of all people. <laughs> Dabney Coleman. <laughs> Few things that cannot get made nowadays. An older man with a young child going around playing pretend. Like, <laughs> no, maybe not. Ugh. Screenwriter is Tom Holland. Uh, not Yay! Not the young child twink but uh rather the the director of fright night and child's play and thinner among other things he has also done some shit like the langoliers which is garbage and thinner (laughs) now i want to live in the alternate universe where spider twink wrote psycho (laughs) 2 have a lot more skin tight outfits well it was funny because when we were announcing psycho 2 last week i feel like i mentioned tom holland and Joe was like, there's our gay connection. I was like, Tom Holland. And he goes, well, I wish. And I think you were thinking about Twink Tom Holland when I said that, but maybe not. I was not. I was convinced that the writer of Fright Night had to be a big old Mo. Um, I, I don't actually think he is. <laughs> I don't think he I think I'm pretty sure he's hetero and married to a woman, but nice try. 
But sidebar, in this film, because he has a small role as one of the deputies, he can get it. I disagree, but we also like different things. I'm just here for this argument. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, because Joe likes men. I like twins. And Trace likes Tom Holland boys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like boys. That's stupid. Um, Whatever. Put on your Negva hat. Yeah. I'm just going to go Nambla? get a cup of tea. One moment. <laughs> Um, anyway, Bring back an uh, umbrella, Michael. I'm delivering all the shade. <laughs> Again, we don't normally go over like the super specific crew, but I just wanted to point out, composer is Jerry Goldsmith, who has done very notable horror scores for The Omen, Alien, Poltergeist, and Gremlins. I don't think his score stands out that well here, especially when you compare it to Bernard Horman's Horman Bernard Herman's original score. I but mean, it's that's fine. a tough act to follow. It is. Well, it's also tricky too when they utilize cues from Herman's score all throughout this movie. I mean, honestly, this was sort of an uphill battle all across the board when you think Mm -hmm. about it. So the fact that this this movie came out in in a good way is all the more important to you know give praise to these people who did it because. The idea of following Hitchcock, the idea of following Bernard Herrmann, the idea of trying to like continue a story that you know is so ingrained in the pop culture awareness, it's it's going to be tough. Even if you're Jerry Goldsmith, that you have to write a score for Psycho Two, that you have you know that no matter how original you want to get, you got to tie it back to those music cues from the first one, or the audience is just going to be like. What, what are they doing? That's, yeah. This isn't what we want out of our psycho movie. It would be like if you went and saw Halloween and you didn't get the John Carpenter synth at least once. People would revolt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a, a lose-lose situation. But it is interesting that you bring up that this film has all these hurdles and then still manages to come out so well. Because I feel like we've done roughly 50% movies on this podcast where it's like the film should have been hot garbage and it somehow just gets pulled together by a really great director and cast and crew and it's kind of amazing what people can do in challenging circumstances yeah and in case you're listening um we are referring specifically off the top of my head to carrie two and ravenous yeah both of which had fucked up productions and had a woman come in two weeks or three weeks into the production and they turned out a either competent or pretty good film mm-hmm. love the rage carrie too i don't think i mean i know you have a whole other episode about it so i'm not listen, <laughs> listeners but i just want to say cat shay is someone who definitely deserves way more love in the landscape of genre films Yes. There, there is nary a cat shape film that I haven't seen that I'm like, this woman should have been helming big franchise movies after some of these. And it's just sort of the systemic misogyny of both genre and the industry at large that she kept taking these scripts that were objectively probably, you know, bound for Cinemax and turned them into good fucking movies. Yep. And I have always liked her. And I thought that what she did with Carrie, too, which is, again, as you said, it's a losing proposition to try and follow Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. But what she did was great. So this is just this is just my PSA. that I'm <laughs> No, and give catch a love. I feel bad, though, because in that episode, I mentioned that um, the new Nancy Drew movie looked like poo. And I haven't watched it yet. But um, the reviews have been middling. So not terrible. So maybe I was wrong. I don't know. I should go see it, I guess. So judgy. But it's also interesting that you bring up Halloween from like, you know, two minutes ago, because the cinematographer of this movie is Dean Cundy, who did the cinematography for Halloween's one, two, and three, as well as The Thing and Jurassic Park. He has a million other things under his belt, but 
you know, those were my big horror pulls because I figure people want to know what he's done. That's a horror release. So there's a lot of good camera work in this film, specifically when the two kids are going in the basement and the camera pans like out of the window over the roof and like down into the basement with them. Oh, yeah. And that is not easy shot no. making perspective to achieve even today in the era of drones and digital and they did it with cameras that were very very heavy running 35 millimeter film so dean Cundy has pulled off many many great things in his career as a cinematographer and uh i'm always thrilled to see his name pop up in the credits yeah and uh really just for cast i mean again you have your returning cast members anthony perkins and vera miles and for new people, I mean, it's not a huge cast, but you've got Meg Tilly, sister of Jennifer, as Mary, and then, of course, Robert Logia. Logia? Logia. I'm going to say Logia. Logia? All right. As Dr. Bill Warren. I just called him Dr. Bill in my notes. And uh, Dennis Franz of NYPD Blue fame as Warren Toomey, the uh, ex-manager of the Bates Motel. Well, he's current when the movie starts, but ex as the movie progresses. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's Psycho 2. What's it about, Joe? <laughs> all right there we go <laughs> that that was a nice segue by the way <laughs> way to cue me up <laughs> so as you mentioned after replaying the infamous janet lee shower death from the original psycho 2 opens with norman bates anthony perkins of course being released from an institution after 22 years much to the displeasure of an alarmed lila loomis vera miles so we're to take it that lila has married Sam, although he never appears in the film. He's dead. I think they say he's dead, right? Yeah. Okay. We assume it's because he got blown up at the end of Halloween 6. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Later Halloween movies. Call in Anya Stanley. (laughs) All right. After returning to the family home under the supervision of Dr. Bill Raymond, Robert Loggia, Norman begins work as a cook at a local diner. Here he is welcomed by Emma Spool, Claudia Breyer, who we have not mentioned because I don't know that she's anyone actually famous. She's not. I was going to put her in the call sheet, but then I was like, oh, she's like super like a bit part until the last like, you know, two minutes of this movie. Mm -hmm. And she hasn't really done much. Okay. So he meets Emma Spool and he befriends a waitress named Mary Meg Tilly, whom he puts up in the Bates house when she reveals that she has nowhere else to go. After fired motel employee Warren Tooney, Dennis France, who has let the motel go to seed, makes a scene at the diner, Norman begins receiving notes and phone calls from his mother. Toomey is killed while collecting his things, and soon the bodies begin to pile up, including a local boy who was killed in the fruit cellar. Norman increasingly thinks he's losing his mind, which is revealed to be part of Lila and Mary's master plan, because it turns out that Mary is Lila's daughter, but she feels badly for mistreating Norman. Unfortunately, by the time she decides to put a stop to the ruse, Norman has already begun to slip. So Lila is killed in the basement, and then in the resulting confusion, Dr. Raymond is accidentally killed by Mary. Seeing Mary in his mother's drag, Norman goes completely off the rails, and Mary is shot by the police defending herself from him. In the final scenes, Emma Spool reveals that she is Norman's real mother, but Norman quickly kills her and recreates the same setup as the original, mimicking mother's voice and setting the body up in the window in anticipation of more murders to come. And that's what you missed on Psycho 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, where do y'all want to start with this? Uh, should we start with that black and white opening sequence? Because I had completely forgotten it. I had thought that I had put on the wrong film. I I have like the four disc Blu-ray box set and I was like, fuck, I put in the wrong disc. But then I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't start with the shower scene. 
I will admit, though, I'm a sucker for old school logos. So even in 83, like showing that black and white Universal logo, I was on board. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I, you know, I, the shower scene is so iconic. Like, what, what more can you say about it? I think that they knew what they were doing. It, But it is a tricky thing. Like you said, you are either setting yourself up for a victory lap or for instant disappointment by reminding the audience, oh, here's the movie that we based it on that everyone really likes a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> like, that's kind of how it feels Here's to me. the bar that we're setting for ourselves. And now let's see if we end up over it or under it. Well, I think I think just from an overall premise standpoint, Psycho 2 does what a sequel should do, which is take the premise and kind of flip it on its head. And it does, even for the first hour, because it makes Norman the center. It doesn't make Mary the center or, or Lila the center of the movie. It's about Norman. And even when that middle, I want to say it's like an hour into the movie, the twist is revealed. literally an hour. Yeah. Okay, so it's like on the dot. That Mary is Lila's daughter. That also, I mean, like, I remember seeing that for the first time, and I was like, what? And it's great. (laughs) So you have the first hour of this movie where you're like, oh, like, this is so fucked up. Like, Like, what's going on? And then the second hour is just, like, another movie. But it's still a, a good one. Yeah, I think that where this is a good spiritual sequel to Hitchcock's, and this speaks, Trace, to what you were saying about how they do play well together, is they both work on the supposition that what you think you know is not necessarily what you know. Mm-hmm. And they they operate as, as very taut suspense thrillers. And one thing that I really like about this particular movie is that for a portion of the film, which I have never seen, a horror sequel or really any sequel attempt to do before is take the essential villain of the film that came before and make you sympathetic to that person. And Mm -hmm. it it is, it is a hard row to sew even, you know, from a fictional standpoint to say this guy killed seven people, but we want you to care about him. And we want you to understand that what he went through is what drove him to this. And he's trying to be a better person. And there is a moment of achievement where I think Psycho 2 gets us there. Where we're like, yes, we know this about Norman Norman Desmond. Norman Desmond, yes. Sunset Boulevard's Norman Desmond. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, I... we know this about Norman Bates, but we let it go. And I think that that's, that's the real genius of, of Tom Holland's script here is we know who the villain of Psycho is, but by the end of Psycho 2, do we really? And we we want him to be better. And he is forced back into his circumstance. And in a way, it's not really even a thriller or a suspense film so much as it is kind of a tragedy. Yes, I was going to say that too. Because this came out, it was 83. So this is the same year as, ooh, you know... Return of the Jedi. Well, yes, but I want to say Friday the 13th Part 3, but maybe that was 82. So I, I, I could be wrong in that. But I'll look it up. It's in that slasher boon. And the only time this movie really kind of goes for that 80 slasher craze is in that scene where the two kids get into the basement. Whereas yeah. Psycho 3 is like a pure 80 slasher. But you're right. It's asking us to sympathize with Norman Bates. And I'm actually interested in y'all's standpoint on this. Do y'all think the film is trying to make Lila a villain? Um, I, I think villain's strong, but I don't know that she's she's definitely an antagonist because yes. I think that there's there's layers here, and I, I you know I, I'm interested to hear what you both think of this as well. Where it again, it's tough because we're presented a hero that for a film ago we were told was a villain, 
And we are presented someone who's working actively against him, who we sympathized with the last round. And I think it shows in a very masterful way that you wouldn't expect from a movie like this, especially a sequel that seemingly was sensationalist. The idea of cashing in on Psycho at the time probably mm-hmm. uh, was, yeah. was a surprise to people. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of, of layers here about how tragedy really changes everything and how people have their whole lives wrecked by something like this. And I have a hard time thinking of Lila as a villain because I think that her life is destroyed forever by the events of Psycho and she has no choice but to be what she's become. Meanwhile, Norman is trying to move past what he was and that's really powerful in in a way, I guess, that I wasn't even prepared to talk about until I we got there. So, And it, it's honestly... Watching Psycho 2 on its own, like, it, let's say, let's pretend like you'd never seen Psycho, because I do think that you could watch Psycho 2 without having seen Psycho, and I think it'd be a drastically different experience, but it works. Like, you can still get it. Sure. But Lila's death still comes as a very big shock. At least to me. I mean, especially the way she dies, which is probably... Yeah. Like, that knife in the mouth, and it sh- you see it come out the back of her head. Because she's not a main player in this film. I feel like she has like five scenes tops before she dies. But then you have to take this woman who is essentially the hero of the first movie and do this to her. It, it, it I mean, I like it. It's such a ballsy move, but it's still like, what? I, I, I would kill to know what people thought back in 83 when this came out. Well, I read a few reviews of this from back in the day, and there was definitely hesitancy about this idea that you had polluted or corrupted this character who was the heroine from the first film. So there were definitely some people who watched this film, thought, I think, that it was not only a cash-in, but that it was doing a disservice to the original film by turning Lila into this vengeful, angry, bitter woman There's that scene where Mary confronts her and says, we shouldn't be doing this. He's not the person that we think he is. He couldn't have committed this murder. And Lila just shuts her down. She's like, I don't care. This is what we want. We want him back into that institution. She's willing to do whatever it takes. So in that regard, I agree with you, Michael. I think villain is too strong a word, but antagonist, absolutely. But I think if you were a fan of the original and you came out thinking that this sequel was going to be more of Norman Bates just killing people, this first hour would be very surprising. And I think it would bring a lot of conflicting emotions to people who were not anticipating it at all. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think what's really cool about it, too, is that Vera Miles agreed to do it. Yeah. And, you know, so, so did Anthony Perkins. And I think in a way, because I, th- I work with actors a lot, and I do know that actors really like to see an evolution of character. And in a fascinating way, maybe not a way that's satisfying to, like, purists of Psycho, but is interesting to an actor who gets to portray a full range of a human. Mm-hmm. This is something that we don't always see in, in characters. Like, we always want you know, Superman to hit the same beats. But like when you survive the destruction of your city, you're going to be changed. And like, that's like a mat, that's a, a macro idea yeah. on a micro sense. We know that tragedy would change someone. And I think that for Anthony Perkins, he probably viewed it as a story of some, a man who is really trying to redeem himself. And Vera Miles was probably drawn to the idea that she didn't have to play the same beats as the original. She got to play a woman who was destroyed by it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking while watching this, 
oddly enough of of kill bill in the end end mm-hmm. beats of of the first movie when michael madsen kind of succinctly says you know that woman deserves her revenge you know and, he says, and we deserve to die well and, yeah, and but then again so does she and but it's norman like, norman it, norman i i think norman agrees with that though because norman obviously feels bad for what he did and i think what the movie does lack is a scene between norman and lila i wish that we had a scene between them but obviously if that happened then we wouldn't have her death scene <laughs> right yeah, well, and the scene with him and Mary where they decide to camp out overnight together in close quarters, and he ends up resting his head on his bosom, and they have that really nice tete-a-tete. That was actually not originally in the script. That was a scene that Anthony Perkins said he wanted because he wanted to make sure that people saw Norman as a sympathetic figure, that he is damaged, but that he's also still a human being after everything that's happened to him. And their relationship is totally viable. I did want to backtrack one second, though, to Vera Miles. This is me totally, like, throwing darts in the wind. Y'all know about the whole thing, though, where, like, you know, Vera Miles was supposed to be in Vertigo, but then she got pregnant and she she couldn't be in the film, so Hitchcock had to cast Kim Novak instead, and he didn't like her in that movie. It's always kind of the rumor that he held a grudge against Vera Miles for getting pregnant. And so her being in Psycho was a contractual obligation to him. So Mm. I know this just from research, but also um, it was confirmed. Well, not confirmed, but the movie Hitchcock with, uh, oh my God, Anthony Hopkins, Hopkins, (laughs) where Jessica Biel plays Vera Miles. Uh, They touch on that relationship. Oh, yeah. It's not a great movie, but um, (laughs) and Scarlett Johansson plays uh, Janet Lee. Totally worth a watch just for that casting, but um, it's not a great movie. So that's a very real thing that is supposedly like like that that was their relationship. So I honestly, I kind of wondered if her taking this movie was like a fuck you (laughs) to Hitchcock. It may well have been. You know, I think the thing is, is, you know, I earlier was talking about sort of the monolithic nature of Hitchcock as this pop culture icon. But we know now he was a terrible person. (laughs) That he was a terrible person. And there was a lot of things that were very inexcusable. And, you know, it is interesting having this conversation in, in 2019 in the, the post-Me Too era. And when you look at the behavior of these auteur filmmakers of yesteryear, they were sort of given carte blanche to behave as poorly as they wanted and the studios mm-hmm. supported mm-hmm. it. And it's interesting to know that people like Kubrick and Hitchcock were essentially terrorizing these women oh yeah if not if not sexually emotionally you know and we know it but it's almost as if like the grandfathered golden era of hollywood we we just don't talk about it a lot yeah i could totally see what you're saying that vera miles was like you know this is my chance to take this character back from me and if that's true like we'll never be able to confirm it but if that's true and that's why she took on this role and in such a a hard 180 for the character then hell yeah go girl like i'm into it i'm so about that i mean she's alive just so y'all know She's very much alive. So if she's not like super dead, you could probably reach out to her and uh, find out if she right. if she's willing to make that confession, like, you know, in her, I want to say 90s. I could be wrong, though. Let's just reach out to her on Twitter. I'm sure she's active. <laughs> I was just really shocked to find out she was still alive. Yeah, surprisingly enough, people do age and not die. Well, <laughs> I'm... yes, I understand. Trace is still a young child. He hasn't accepted these. Well, no, like, because Janet Lee died like 10, maybe 13 years ago. And I mean, Hitchcock's been dead forever. Anthony Perkins died in the 90s. I'm just listening. Sorry. 
<laughs> Everyone in Psycho's dead except for Vera Miles. Anyway, sorry. I digress. Yeah, I actually didn't know one way or the other, which is why I was speaking objectively. Well, if you had read my call sheet, you would see that um, in her notable films, I literally put in all caps, she's still alive, followed by Psycho, <laughs> The Searchers, and The Wrong Man. <laughs> right, well, I some of us think have... that that was a title from a movie called She's Still Alive. <laughs> no, I was, you know, it's, it's all caps. <laughs> in the cases of our particular... Uh, our work that is very likely a, a name of a film yeah um, <laughs> yeah she's still alive <laughs> coming to theaters 2020 she's i'm just saying alive. the formatting was different and i put in ellipses after it but that's okay that's okay i'm not offended um i actually literally did think it was the name of the film. <laughs> i did too i would have put in the fun facts <laughs> vera miles is still alive fun fact <laughs> <laughs> just so you know I mean, I'm it's shocking. Get a letter tomorrow. Um, okay, so bringing us back on point. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, Michael, that you brought up the Me Too and some of the abuse because I don't know if the two of you know this, but apparently Meg Tilly had a very difficult time on this set. I didn't know that, and I don't no, think it shows at all in the final film. But she she's on the record as saying that she felt abused by both Anthony Perkins as well as Richard Franklin. That's actually interesting that you say that because I, I was doing some reading. I don't know if it was on Psycho 3 or if it was on Psycho 4 or maybe it was even Psycho 2. But someone, maybe it was Richard Franklin, said that Anthony Perkins was one of the most challenging actors he'd ever worked with. I actually think it was Richard Franklin now, now, now that I'm thinking about it. I could be wrong, but someone said that about him. And I, I, obviously, it's probably because he has such a close connection to this character. But mm. so that that Meg Tilly would have said that about Perkins too. I mean, I'm not defending it, sorry, by any means. But doesn't it kind of make sense? I mean, you have this character who's iconic as fuck, and he doesn't want it to get fucked up. I mean, I, I don't know. He was like, "Don't fuck this up for me." Well, okay. So I've read an Anthony Perkins biography. He was not without his diva qualities. And obviously, he had a difficult career after the success of Psycho because he was originally a leading man. Like, yeah. he was in romantic comedies, and then the one role turned him into a horror icon. He could never get rid of it. Like, so his days were done. He was also, you know, a totally closeted actor, so he had a bunch of skeletons Wait, in the closet. I had a really quick question, though. Because I know he died. He died from pneumonia through complications of AIDS. Mm -hmm. Was it confirmed that he was gay? Oh yes. But, but, but he, yes, yes, yes. So like, definitely. I mean, cause I know he, he had a wife or he had a partner. I should have. Yeah, he also had a long-term boyfriend. Okay. Yeah, Tab Hunter had been in a long-term relationship with Anthony Perkins that Tab Hunter himself had confirmed. Okay. I believe mm -hmm. he talks about it in the documentary Tab Hunter Confidential. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Continue. Interestingly enough, also hearkening back to one of the comments you made earlier, Trace, so Meg Tilly took this role, she had not seen Psycho, and that was the source of their animosity, was she was like, I don't get it, why are all the reporters making such a big deal about Anthony Perkins, like, why are they storming him and asking him all these questions, and he was like, bitch, do your fucking homework, and after that, their relationship on set was very frosty. And then Jennifer's like, excuse me, just, yeah, how about Psycho? <laughs> That was a really bad Jennifer Tilly impersonation. I'm so sorry. You're going to have to work on that before we get to a, a Jennifer Tilly movie. Uh, we're doing... Well, ooh, mm, sorry. I'll cut that out. Yeah, cut that out. <laughs> but yes, you're right. That's kind of shocking, though. I mean, well, 
I say it's bad, but were VHSs around in 1983? No. Too early. There you go. It's, you know what? She tried, I bet. She was probably born when Psycho came out. She could have watched it on Betamax. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Michael, you're going to have to explain what Betamax is to Trace. I'm okay. I'm sure I'll Google it later. It's a dead (laughs) format. Is it like Laserdisc? It's in between Laserdisc and VHS. It was like, you know how Blu-ray was competing with like HD, yeah, H- yeah. <laughs> HD TV? No, HD DVD, yeah. So it was that sort of thing where it was, it could have gone Betamax or it could go VHS and VHS one. Uh, yeah, I'm, they were like littler tapes. They were yes. kind of like cute. Like yeah. an 8-track almost? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, okay. a lot of people actually wanted Betamax to be the one that won out, but it was I'm sorry, bad. y'all aren't giving me fucking credit for knowing what a fucking eight track is. So you know, I watched I Love the Seventies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, VH1, for Trace's education. <laughs> it's probably also how he knows all of his diva knowledge. <laughs> that actually probably is correct. <laughs> but yeah, well, h- how do y'all feel about Meg Tilly's performance in this movie? I actually think that she's really interesting because she has a less clear path through. Like, you've got a very clear arc for Norman Bates in this film. And then you've also got a relatively clear but obviously much smaller arc for Lila. And then you've got Mary trying to do this subterfuge balancing act where it's not even clear if she's in love with Norman or if she's feeling motherly or if she just feels guilty. And I think she's really hitting that delicate balance well, or at least for me, she is. What's interesting to me about the Psycho movies is there are obviously like romantic characters and sexualized women that enter Norman's life, but with the exception of the fact that he has a wife in part four and, you know, the fact that his mom is trying to hit on him. Uh, he does not, over the course of this franchise, ever really, like, seem to engage with anybody in that way. No. And so, for me, also reflects back upon how the characters interact with them. Like, I don't really view Mary as a romantic character for him at no. all. Like, she, I think she's someone who was like kind of sent as an agent of, of Lila's plan to re-institutionalize Norman Bates. And she gains sympathy for him and she likes him as a person, but I don't think that she's like jonesing to like bang or anything. I think that she is in many, many ways, a subdued character who is sort of a victim of her own circumstance. Her mother is obsessed with this and she has grown up with her mother's obsession. And so she's she's going along with it because that's what kids sometimes do when their parents are driven in these ways. Yeah, she's almost like a mirror of Norman's relationship with his mother in that capacity, right? Like, she's been brought up for this singular oh, purpose. I like that. I, I didn't actually yeah, me too. put that together until you just said it, but I, I think that's actually a really good parallel between those two characters and also explains why she would connect with him so much. Yeah, that's really insightful. It occurred to me watching it this time, knowing that Mary was Lila's daughter. Because the first time you watch it, it honestly feels like you've been slapped in the face. Oh, 100%. I was completely taken off guard the first time I watched it. And then I forgot about it. So this whole time I was rewatching it for this, I spent the entire first hour being like, wait, do we not know? And then the reveal comes at the one hour mark. And I was like, oh, 
But it's really interesting to watch the film knowing what she's doing, because it really feels like the film is commenting not just on what grief can do to people, but also how bad parenting can raise children into a really terrible situation. Okay, so I don't love her in this movie. I think her performance isn't the best. But as I was rewatching it, knowing that she was putting on a show for the first hour, mm. I kind of tricked my mind into saying, oh, she's just playing. It's a performance. Yes, it's yeah. a performance. So it's her playing like a bad liar. Doesn't necessarily explain the second half of the movie, but it worked <laughs> for the first half of the movie. I mean, I don't think she's bad. Sorry, that sounds kind of dicky. But I just think that her lines came across as it's kind of like this, no. What are you doing, Norman? Like, I don't know. There was just some kind of like ethereal quality to it that I was like, bitch, what are, are you like fucking floating in heaven <laughs> as an angel right now? What's going on? So, well, I do. Th- go ahead. Go ahead. I do think this is a tricky character, honestly. I think that sometimes characters like this, from a viewer's standpoint, seem very simple, but I do think from a screenplay standpoint, are very difficult for actors because really what she is is not as fleshed out a character as some of the other characters because she's a transitive character in the Mm -hmm. way that she is supposed to get us from point A to point B, but her motives aren't even reflective of a personal motive. It has to do with a plot-driven motive. She is basically a device to show us that Norman has in some way been rehabilitated so we as an audience begin to grow sympathetic to him but then at the hour mark we are also clued into the fact that she is also a tool of this trauma that exists from lila and she really is sort of not to any fault of meg tilly's this is more of a script thing is like a tofu character in the way that she has to sort of take on the flavor of the character she's interacting with because that's her job. And that's a really tough role and sometimes a very thankless role for an actor to have because you need that character to get the audience there, but then it's sort of like they're kind of stuck in the scenes while other people are emoting. Yeah. Yeah. Which, to me, there's this one really interesting scene that feels very different from every other scene in the film, which is when she actually confronts her mother in the hotel lobby. And then the sound gets cut off. And obviously, again, this is a plot device, just like you talked about, Michael, where that scene exists so that we can have the bellhop see her arguing. And then that's why the police think that she's involved in the murders and she gets killed at the end. That's the scene that like literally leads to her character's like, not demise, but like her character's character's demise. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? I've been thinking about it since uh, we were sort of talking about the parallel journeys of these characters and then the mom issues of it all. And at the top of the show, we we did mention sort of the the Halloween 4-0 of it all. But what's interesting now that Joe has said what he had to say, and we've been having this ongoing discussion Mm. about how this has played out and, and family's effect... I'm interested because it draws a parallel to Halloween 4.0 in a bigger way than even I guess I realized in, in that this movie is about generational trauma yeah. in an era before we really had the words to describe it as such. And that's why it's like interesting to know that, you know, the new Halloween was the first horror movie about generational trauma. Oh and now God. watching Psycho 2, <laughs> I kind of I, I kind of think that it's not. I mean, I didn't think it was anyway, but like this definitely is like, look. 
here it shows how this has destroyed not just one generation of people, but two. Absolutely. Three, really. One of the big differences is that H4O kind of hung its hat on that idea. They knew that they could use that as not just a marketing ploy, but also as a thematically resonant way of getting people back invested in Laurie Strode's journey, which is one of the reasons why I find myself disliking that film so much more is because mm -hmm. it purports to do that but it's not actually doing that it doesn't well, care about laurie strode's journey you're Whereas right here i feel like the film even with the twist where half of the film you don't even know that it's about intergenerational trauma it still pulls off the heavy lifting better I'm just going to say, I agree, because like, the problem is that, yeah, Halloween splits its screen time between the Laurie Strode stuff and literally everything else going on in that movie, and that's where it quote-unquote fails. But I like that you mentioned that the marketing for that movie knew that that's what to focus on, because the marketing for Psycho 2, P.S., the only extra feature on the fucking Psycho 2 Blu-ray is the trailer and subtitles, just in case. Yeah, you have to get a, a <laughs> random other version if you want a commentary. Well, I, the, the Blu-rays restart, so um, I fell asleep during the last 10 minutes of Psycho 3 last night, and what woke me up was when the movie restarted with, God is dead! <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's literally how it starts. And I had to like re go back and watch the last 10 minutes of Psycho 3 again to finish it. Anyway, but yeah, the trailer for Psycho 2, it doesn't emphasize that at all, which obviously not surprising considering it's in 1983 and who cares but it very much leans on the mythology and the um epicness that is psycho right i mean i think you've got to though right at the end of the day the way that you're getting people into seats is you're selling it on norman bates like it's the next chapter that's why they went with the tagline right 22 years later and norman bates is coming home mm -hmm. but i mean the reason that this film works as well as it does is because it's not just a norman bates thing like it's not just his story it's really about the interplay between these three characters and i think you're right michael the reason that mary suffers is because she really is caught in the middle and trace like you said she's playing a part for half of this film so at the end of the day some people might say it's her acting style. Some people might say it's the way she's written. But Mary ultimately isn't a fully fleshed out character because it's not her story, but she's in it. Like, she's a focal point of it. Did y'all... And I think this may be a post thing, but I got the impression that Mary was dubbed quite a bit. There was a lot of ADR, I could tell. Yes. Yeah. But on hers, where I noticed it the most, and I think that maybe where her performance disconnects with me because it doesn't... I don't know. It, it it felt like a Giallo film almost, you know, where it's like that shitty ass dubbing, uh, that shitty ass ADR. That's how I felt about her. Maybe that's why I couldn't connect with her as much as like, you know, someone else could. Hmm. I would be interested to know why. I mean, there's probably, there, there's, I'm sure, a story there because anytime you have to ADR a scene, there's always some reason and maybe like her mic wasn't working well but, like I, the scene i, I noticed it the most is um when he first invites her to his house and they're in the parking lot of the diner that's when i first noticed it and then it just kind of continued throughout the film but i mean the outside of the diner makes sense because maybe there were a bunch of cars driving by sure mm. i don't know but yeah i don't know <laughs> what are some of the other notable elements for you two um I really like the notes that Lila and Mary <laughs> leave for Norman. <laughs> oh yeah, it's super small. Like, kind of great grade school penmanship. Like, yeah. don't let that little whore in my house, or Norman get rid of that slut, or I'll kill her. Oh, I love this slut note because <laughs> Anthony Perkins has this amazing like reaction where he's like, "Slut." <laughs> yeah, like we don't say that word in this house. 
I know he says it and then he just kind of like flounces off and I'm just like, wow. But then there's also lines that I'm like, oh, that's like, there's the part where um the cops like, so what's the trouble? Bates dressing up as his mother again? Like this really flippant, nonchalant attitude. Or um, I love the whenever Norman confesses that he killed his mother to Mary and he's like, uh, when I was 12, my mother went mad. So I slipped her a little poison and he like mimes it. Yeah, that line delivery to me was classic. <laughs> I have a special note about it in, like, when I was taking notes watching the film. I was like, oh, wow, that is an interesting inflection that Anthony Perkins decided to use for that particular line. And even Mary, though, when she's talking to Toomey and he's like, she's like, uh, you want to know how he makes love? Better than you'll ever be, fat boy. And it's like, what is, what are we watching? <laughs> you know, I have to say, speaking of Toomey, I basically worship the altar of a character actor. And when I, when character actors get to do what they do best, it's one of my favorite things. He is and despicable. Era, Gross. <laughs> oh, he's so despicable. But it just shows how good Dennis Franz can be. Mm-hmm. And in in this pre-NYPD Blue era, a lot of times uh, Dennis Franz would pop up in Brian De Palma movies as like the sleazy PI. Yeah. Or like, you know, the like second string cop who's like investigating like the hooker killer or whatever. Yeah, he's an asshole in Die Hard 2, right? Yeah. Shit, he's in Die Hard 2? Oh, I need to rewatch that. I love Die Hard 2. Sorry. Digression. Dennis Franz has been asshole across the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I just, I think that, like, you don't like him, which means he's doing his job. Like, yeah. I think that, like, you're not supposed to like that character. Even though, I mean, that character is, in a way, much more real than some of the people who actually inhabit the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is, we know, just living on the internet, how mob mentality can reach a people. Like, people are not forgiving. That's just, that's how people are. So, the fact that he is, like, stuck on this, you know, maybe you all are cozy, cozy with Norman Bates, but remember, he's a psycho. We're supposed to not like him because he's like a sleazy sex hotel operator, but he he is voicing kind of like what I think real people in town would have actually been thinking. Well, that's yeah. the thing, though. Like the people other than Lila, no one else in town, even the cops are on Norman's side. Like everyone seems to be rooting for Norman in this movie, except for Lila. And to me, I, I know it's kind of amazing. It's sort of like this whole town somewhere in Southern California is like, we definitely believe in the benefits of medical science. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the power of Christian goodness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that Christianity plays a lot bigger factor in Psycho 3. Just a heads up, Joe. <laughs> yeah, there's there's nuns aplenty. <laughs> Nuns of Plenty, by the way, is the name of the next movie that I <laughs> She's still alive, Nuns of Plenty. <laughs> She's still alive. <laughs> I love it. Do you two like the idea that this film is almost like a closed parlor set where, you know, we've got the diner and we've got the motel and we've got the house and really we don't go too much further than that? Yeah. It occurred to me, Michael, as you were saying, oh, well, Toomey's representative of these other people. And I'm like, we never even see the town. Like, we never see Norman have to go and get groceries from people, like regular Joe kind of people. And it's interesting because I think it works to the benefit of the film to have him be isolated. Like, we only ever see him at the site of the crime or at this job, which he almost immediately quits. And you're like, God, Norman, you're literally just spending all of your time at this place that's driving you crazy. 
Uh, I think that was that's probably both uh, a story choice because it forces him to be back in the place that one we as an audience want him to be because that's why we go and see the movie. Mm-hmm. But also it like lends itself psychologically to his degradation over the course of the storyline. And then just from a filmmaking perspective, I've, I've gotten these notes where they'll be like, oh, I see that you wrote a scene outside. You know, it would be really great if it was inside so we don't have to pay for something. <laughs> and, <laughs> it and might be rainy. We can't afford... Yeah, it's true. It's true. A lot of times when films are set in like very specific locations, it's usually like an artistic choice, but it's also a budgetary choice. And even though with inflation, this movie uh, certainly had a very good budget. Yeah. Studios love to cut corners. Speaking of budgetary cutbacks, I do love the throwaway line they throw in the beginning where the psychiatrist is like, well, they were cutbacks. So a trained social worker can't check in on you from time to time. So it's just like... Here you go. Here's life. Um, we're not going to check up on you because there's budgetary cuts. Right. But in my mind, who would have played that part in 1983? A young Sally Field. Ugh. The Flying Nun. Absolutely. Yeah. Would she have died, though? No, she, she flew away. Spectacularly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to Nuns Plenty, part three. I mean, there, and there's a lot of... <laughs> oh my gosh, she should have been the nun in Psycho 3. She should have been. That would have been great. She wouldn't have done that. There, but, and there are more interesting line readings. Like that, whenever he introduces Dr. Raymond to Mary, he's like, this is Dr. Raymond. He was my psychiatrist at the institution. He says it no nonchal- so nonchalantly. And whenever Lila and Mary have their confrontation, and <laughs> Lila's like, just dress in his mother's clothes one more time. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's really that easy. I can't let go of my vengeful tactics. Somebody's got to wear that wig in mom's dress. <laughs> Your daytime drag challenge. Yeah, it's your quick drag is you need to get into Norman Bates's mother's outfit in five minutes. <laughs> and drive him to murder. Do y'all think that this movie feels like a cash grab? Uh, um, I was interested in the little fun fact that you included that originally Perkins said no and it was going to be a television movie with Christopher Walken. Yeah. But then he came back to it, and then they went theatrical. Because I could have seen this in the early 80s being a TV movie. Not at, a, not at that runtime. So, no, well, yeah. No. It's a three-hour I mean, movie with commercials. You've also got to think yeah. about it. So, I mean, I included this, too. Like, you know, Robert Block, the author of Psycho, he wrote Psycho 2 in 1982. Or it was released in 1982. I haven't read it, but it sounds very much like Scream 3. <laughs> Where it's uh, like, or the Showgirls sequel that we never got. Uh, oh well, that's I, I think is something that is kind of crucial to the discussion of the the films as sequels. Is Robert Block, the author of Psycho, obviously you know they based the original film on his novel, and he did write a, a number of sequels uh, set in the Psycho world, but none of the books that Robert Block wrote, the sequels of Psycho of the original Psycho novel. None of them were adapted to film. No. Like, these movies are, are original movies that have nothing to do with the books that he wrote. Well, because yeah. Psycho 2 is like about a Hollywood movie and Norman goes and terrorizes it. That's what I'm under the impression of. Yeah, they're making a movie based on his life and he goes and you're right, Scream 3 is the production. But <laughs> the timing of the release of the book and the film to me is very suspect. It makes me wonder if they realized that they could capitalize on the additional interest of the sequel book by releasing a sequel movie. But then they just didn't like his well, plot. I'm sure they knew the concept ahead of time. And so while he was writing the book, they were like, mm, we're not going to do that. But I guess we have to pay you for the name. So uh, here's some money. Write your book. Or we're going to make this other better movie. Well, apparently Hollywood did not 
take kindly to the satirical bent of the book. They didn't yeah. like the idea of Norman killing Hollywood people, <laughs> which is like that's no, yeah, that's not not surprising. It's a Hollywood little too meta, I guess. <laughs> But this movie could have been the Scream franchise of the Psycho universe back in the 80s. It could have been the Scream 3, which is what we all aspire to be. <laughs> yes, let's reinvigorate the Scream debate on Twitter <laughs> once again. Like you said, Joe, you know, yeah, um, Perkins came back to the script. He came back to the movie because he liked the script. And I think it shows. I, this movie, while there are plenty of throwbacks and homages to the original, it feels genuine, if that's any like yes. w- way to say that. I think it was prepared lovingly. I mean, the the truth is this. When when you are working at a studio level of the magnitude that you are with a property as big as Psycho, there is not a world where there's not at least some decision that isn't motivated by the financial gain of it all. I mean, no one operates on multi-million dollar level solely to make something out of love. Like they they do know that this is a business endeavor that they wanted to make money off of. Oh my god, Michael, you are so polite and charming. Trace and I would just be like, they're money grabbers! (laughs) Like, they just want a cash grab. And you're like, well, there is a financial value in capitalizing on these known properties. But it's true. There's There's nothing that we go to see at the movies that financials weren't considered. Oh, like, of course. You want, yeah. No one wants the honest truth that like when people are like, oh, it was a money grab. Yeah, everything you do Everything's is a money, money grab. grab. Yeah. But there's a loving way to do it. And I think that this was lovingly done. I think that like when you engage the right people who are careful and caring about the material, like I, I don't think that, you know, Tom Holland, I mean, sure, Tom Holland, when he sat down to write the script was like, oh, wow, I'm writing Psycho 2. Maybe I can like buy that yacht. Right. But on the same token, it's like if you grew up in a certain era, worshipping a certain kind of film, it would be like any horror fan, you know, you mentioned Scream, like imagine any of the, the, the gays on Twitter that we interact with, if you were like, all right, you get to write Scream 5. There's not a person that we know that's like ravenous about that movie that wouldn't be fucking thrilled to go do it and put all their heart and soul into it. Yeah. And that's what you want out of this. The, the producers are making the cash grab, but you want someone who cares enough to do it right. And I think that he cared. I think he took some he took some chances and uh, luckily I, I think it worked out. But I think the love is there and that's what you see and that's why it worked. Yeah, which is interesting because it kind of sounds like part three and to a lesser extent part four because that was actually a TV movie. It kind of sounds like the third film they either didn't have a good handle on the concept or they were just looking to. <sighs> maybe make some extra money well i did so the reason that the psycho four is what it is is because three flopped critically and commercially because i want to say perkins or someone had a script idea building off of three and the studio was like um the third one fucking sucked do something different and that's why psycho four is like this pre it's like the godfather two or mamma mia two if you will structure where it's like half prequel half sequel I Those two really comparisons like cannot be said in the same sentence. <laughs> um, wait, have you seen both of them? Because they're very apt. <laughs> I really like Psycho 4. I think given what it is, it definitely like brought some shock value back in a way that was very true to the character. I don't know that I would think that Psycho, Psycho 3 of all of them, as weird as it is, mm-hmm. definitely feels the least like a cash grab for the reasons 
that you were illustrating earlier about how Anthony Perkins initially didn't want to come back because he is so precious about the character. And now all of a sudden, he not only is back in the world, but Psycho 3 is the one that he has the most investment in Mm -hmm. from an artistic standpoint because he's not only starring in it, he directed it. And he makes some choices that are not expected, but I think most of his directing choices do work. It's just a, a very weird film. No, oddly enough, I think Psycho 3 of the Psycho movies is like, it's the midnight movie. Like, mm-hmm. it's a movie you're either going to like or you're not. It's sort of like, you want some wackadoo analogies. If Psycho is Grease, Psycho 3 is Grease 2. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it is, it's, a, it's a great midnight movie. And the people who are in it are like, yeah, I'm down for this dirty, sleazy rock and roll. But hmm. it's definitely not. It's definitely it's definitely not Sandy at the fair. Does that, but, you know. does that make you want to see it more, Joe? Oh, <laughs> it, it's Grease like, too. <laughs> you two have been piquing my interest because part of me is like, are we talking Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Next Generation level crazy, um, or no. are we just but, talking? Wait, 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 wait! But you haven't seen Next Generation, have you? I mean, I've seen enough of it to know. Oh my god, no, no! Oh, I'm so excited. I cannot wait for you to watch that movie. It's so funny. But Psycho 3 is not on that same level, because Psycho 3 is still a competent film. <laughs> fair, fair. Okay. Well, so, because again, I would argue that Psycho 3 is probably the queerest of these movies, which might be no coincidence because of Anthony Perkins' directorial hand. For sure. There isn't a ton of queerness in this, in Psycho 2, so the fact that we chose to cover it is, um, you know, a thing. What are <laughs> what are some queer things like that you can pull from this movie other than the amazing shovel smash that closes the film? Uh, I mean, this movie in some way, shape, or form is definitely all about identity and how our identity is informed by what other people expect of us as opposed to our authentic selves. And I do think that there is a queer narrative there. Unfortunately, of course, as tends to happen when you're looking at otherness in horror movies, when you apply that label to Norman Bates, his authentic self is actually somebody that we hope and pray that he isn't because it's a bad person. But he wants so desperately to be somebody that everybody approves of. I don't know. The queer read of this movie, there there is probably a, a greater discussion. I don't think it's as queer as some of the other Psycho films. But that doesn't mean that it's not. I think that there is, um, I don't know, there's, there's a lot going on well, here. And I even think, Joe, that um, Mary and Norman have more of a, like we have said, you know, it doesn't feel like a romantic relationship. It actually feels more like a sibling relationship because they both have these mother troubles. So that kind of ties back into our discussion on Oculus and how siblings can play a role in, you know, like being queer. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, too, it's that really close relationship that you can have to a mother figure and the idea that abuse can ultimately end up affecting the way that you, not who you become per se, because I don't want to tread the line that Michael was suggesting could be dangerous, which is we end up with these queer killers, which I think is the common reading of the original Psycho. But I think more just this idea that they can they can stunt or alter or they stifle the way that you express who you truly are. And to me, like Psycho 2, at the end of the day, is Norman coming back to that place of familiarity, which unfortunately is a killer mind state. But the grappling with it and the questioning and the being uncertain and having to, you know, 
talk to people about it in a hesitant tone and say like I don't know what this means about me to me that is very much like a almost a coming out narrative yeah and then you know he hits his his real mom in the head with a shovel and carries that body upstairs that (laughs) that so admittedly like when I when I first saw this I'm going back five years I thought this move was done and Meg Tilly getting killed is still shocking to me and I don't know why it is, because again, like you're talking about a sequel to a movie that famously killed its female protagonist at the 40 minute mark. But, but it's such a tragedy. It is. Because before she dies, she turns against him. Mm-hmm. So he loses that one person of support that he had immediately. And then she's dead immediately after that. Yeah. It's shocking. It's tragic. It's sad. It's a terrible end for her character. Like, not yeah. narratively, it, it works. But it's just depressing as fuck. Oh, yeah. And then he gets off the hook because she is literally pegged for all these murders. <laughs> yep. That's terrible. And then Mrs. Spool comes in. Mrs. Spool. Yeah. This doesn't hit quite as hard as I would quite like, if only because part of what I liked about the early parts of the film was the uncertainty of is Norman losing his mind or is it that, you know, at the hour mark we find out, oh no, he's actually being played. So to then introduce this unexpected third option of, oh no, he actually was receiving notes and calls, maybe not all of them, but Mm -hmm. some of them were from this mystery absent mother it's a little like freddy krueger has well, like a strange backstory but we're only now hearing about it so i will say this so as y'all may know the biggest complaint that people have about the original psycho is that therapist scene where you know he exposition drops norman's entire diagnosis mm-hmm. the second one has something similar when the guy talks about mary and how they believe that mary was the killer in the whole situation and i actually thought that was a really nice throwback a good to that callback scene. yeah yeah but then it also kind of does that again when Mrs. Spool does her little exposition dump. I will say, and I'm sorry to throw Psycho 3 back into the mix, but Psycho, <laughs> Psycho 3 has one of the laziest, most sloppy exposition dumps of this is what's been happening all along. And it's in relation to the Mrs. Spool thing that I don't know if words can describe it. But anyway. Well, this really did they're feel all <laughs> like it, it felt like a bit of a setup. Like if this movie does well... Mm-hmm. We can explore the fact that Norman had a different mother than we expected. And what does that mean? Or it sets up that original relationship from the first film again. It's putting a pin in it, but it's also opening it up. Well, I mean, it, this is what really makes it a product of the 80s as opposed to the original Psycho. Because at the time Hitchcock makes Psycho, they're not thinking sequel, sequel, about... Sequel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's it. It's like, whereas in 1983, you've already seen, you know, several slasher franchises start getting kicked off. I mean, like, we're not quite in the meat of it yet, but it's it's there. Like, the trains left the station. Mm-hmm. Even the fact that it opened uh, the the week, uh, same week or week after. I'm, I'm sorry, my brain is off. Yeah, a week after. <laughs> Jedi, like, yeah, Which, there you what go. were you they got, thinking? Um, what were they thinking? And a June release for this slasher sequel. Sorry, I'm I'm still boggled by that. <laughs> Well, they were probably thinking it's a summer release, the kids are out of school, and it's a well-known entity, so we could make some some big bucks. I mean, yeah. And, and that's it. it. A lot of money. I mean, this is not the same target audience who would be going to a Star Wars film. Although, of course, now we know that a Star Wars film is a four-quadrant film, and it's everybody's film. Yeah. <laughs> Except for, exactly. you know, haters and trolls, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wait, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Michael, though, you were saying something. And I apologize because I interrupted you. <laughs> oh, no, I was just saying it's like they are now thinking you, we want to go back to the business of it all at this era where sequels are proving to be the box office strong. Yeah. Yeah. They are now thinking about it in ways they were not thinking about it when Psycho came out. So, of course, it's like, well, if this does well, let's set it up so Norman can come back for another romp. Absolutely. And yeah, it did. I looked it up while we were talking earlier. This is coming out in between Friday 3 and Friday 4. Yeah, so they already they already know that there is a hunger for horror audiences. Because there was, wait, there was a gap. Because it was, it was 80, 81, 82 for Friday 1 through 3. A gap mm-hmm. in 83, and then 84 yeah. was Friday 4. Yes! Oh, I knew yeah. it. <laughs> so this, this actually is like right when franchising and sequels for slasher films particularly... I don't know. It's so weird to me. I wouldn't consider this film a slasher film. Like, I know it is, but I also, at the same time, I'm watching it and I'm like, this is a drama where a couple of people get stabbed. That's actually the one thing I wanted to touch on really quickly before I forgot. So this is in the boon of those 80s slashers, and it doesn't quite hit the mark in terms of like being a slasher, like Mm -hmm. Psycho 3 does. It's too adult. It it is, but I, I kind of respect it more. And honestly, had had the scene with the two kids smoking pot and having sex, where he's really awkwardly grabbing her boob. Um, I mean, personally, <laughs> yeah. I, I've never he had never done that before. I've only made it with one girl in my life, but I I don't that looked really not comfortable for her. I mean, maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know what girls feel like. But had that scene been excised from the film, I think a it might be a better film. It's wholly unnecessary, apart it from is. the fact that it alerts the cops, and that's it. Well, because I think we're to believe that, that Mrs. Spool killed them, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But Miss Spool kills everybody, except yes. for Dr. Raymond and Mary. Ooh, ooh. But when he dies, though, and he lands on that banister, and the knife like is like pushed further into his chest. Oh, I love oh, it. The kills in this movie are surprisingly brutal. Yeah. People are getting knives shoved really hard into them like even when mary is slicing at norman as he's advancing on her down the stairs i was like these cuts hurt they look painful Toomey gets a slash across the face and it's clearly a prosthetic like the makeup isn't exceptional but it's a really like deep like slash on his face that pops up mm-hmm. and yet they pull the death scene like they just fade to black <laughs> and you're like oh, yeah okay are they gonna pull the punches and then we get the kid's death and you're like Okay, this is a little more artfully designed. And then you get the the Raymond death, which is... It's a, it's escalating. Oh, that Lila death is perfect. I I love that Lila. And then, like you see her corpse at the end. It's all like black, but hidden behind those wall, those rocks. <laughs> Grody. But yeah, I mean, I, I respect the film, though, for not playing into the slasher formula. Because again, yeah, like, like Michael said, this is like the boon of it. This is like you're in the thick of it. It's about to take off with Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and Nightmare on Elm Street comes out the year after this. So mm-hmm. it's kind of respectable, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it definitely carries a balance. It's heading into the decade of slashers while still trying to maintain respect to the original. And it, it effectively works on both levels. So what's your score for this movie, Michael? Out of five. Out of five. Um, I would definitely give this like a three and a half. Only because I don't think it has the lasting impact of the original. I mean, what does? But I do. That's true. <laughs> I mean, but it was funny. I was when I was revisiting my uh, my assessment of this when I wrote about it a decade ago. I actually said it was probably my least favorite of the three, but with <laughs> the caveat that I still think it is uh, 
a really great film. And I just think that I really apparently have a affinity when I'm digging into sequels that I just want them to be crazy. See, <laughs> it's fair. It, it, totally fair. And I mean, th- that 90 minute runtime for Psycho 3 and it's complete batshit insanity. I mean, I want to watch it again knowing what it is because I think, again, immediately after watching Psycho 2, I was just kind of like, what is this? Psycho 2 is unquestionably a more masterful film. I think this is that debate where like you can recognize a film as better but better is not always favorite right that yeah sense. absolutely yeah and i mean i mean when i i went to go rescore this on letterbox i had given it a four and a half out of five when i saw it you know five years ago i i downgraded it to a four because five years ago i was blown away by how not shitty it was <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah but i i still think it's right again psycho is like a five out of five for me psycho two is a four and then psycho three is a three so we'll see what Psycho 4 is for me one day. I don't know. I got to go back and watch it. <laughs> yeah. It's a four for me as well. And I think for a lot of the same reasons that you both suggested, this idea that it's reverent to the original and it's doing something very, very well that a sequel doesn't always do. But at the same time, like this isn't a fun watch. This really does feel like a tragedy, a mm. slow motion tragedy. And... You know, when you're watching it, like, these people are all really messed up, and it's going to end badly. And it does. But even the kills, you're just like, oh, wow, okay, she just got that knife through the face. And you're like, it's really gory, but then you're right back into the thick of it, like, ugh, these people. You almost wish that somebody would just burn that fucking house down, because no good can come of it. Never. <laughs> well, do y'all have any uh, lingering or closing thoughts that y'all want to mention on the film? I have a game. Oh, introduce your game. <laughs> Joyce always forgets about the game. No, but we finish. Like, I just say any thoughts before we get to the game. <laughs> Backtrack. Yeah, sure. It's a Herculean effort to follow a movie as ingrained into pop culture as Psycho. And I think that they did more than a competent job. They made it something that's really engaging and thoughtful and so that to me is a a hat tip because it's uh it is definitely an achievement yeah for sure i agree i agree what's your game joe all right let's play this game so originally i had two but i think we'll just keep it to one and the one that i'm gonna go with is if you had to make a Gus Van Sant style direct sequel to this film, <gasps> who would you cast? And you can keep the original people from Gus Van Sant's remake, but obviously you would have to cast new versions of Mary and the Doctor. But you can recast them all if you want. Wait, did you look at my Twitter last night? Because I literally posed this exact same question. <laughs> I did not. Surprisingly enough, no. I'm not just hanging around your Twitter waiting for you to post things. Okay. No, 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 no. So I, however, so, am surprised. So, so, so Psycho 2 came out, you know, 23 years after Psycho 1. The 23rd anniversary of Gus Van Sant's Psycho is in 2021, so in two years. And I was like, I kind of want a sequel. Bring back Julianne Moore. Bring back Vince Vaughn. Give me a shot-for-shot fucking remake of Psycho 2. But who's going to play Mary? Mm-hmm. So who did you end up with? I didn't pick anyone. I just let other people pick. So now I got to think about it. <laughs> Michael, you go first. So this is a woman of what? We're assuming somewhere in her mid 20s. Well, no, because we're assuming that Lila gave birth after Psycho. So we're thinking like 2021. 20, hmm. I think that's how old Mary's oh. supposed to be. Well, that's uh, 
gosh, who would I pick for this? Someone said it's not age appropriate, but do Jennifer Tilly. And I was like, mm, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> but no. Um, oh, God. Uh, I definitely think I'm just going to hard pivot away from that while I think about it and say I want someone outrageous to play Mrs. Spool. Okay. Like, give me a, a shock Helen Mirren reveal. Ooh. Mm. But, but, no, but the problem is, though, Mrs. Spool isn't just in the end of the film. She's in the beginning, too. So you... Right. And you're like, that's such a murder she wrote, like, cop out. You're like, well, clearly this woman has something to do with Oh, because it's a famous person. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I think that if you're doing the bold Gus Van Zandt remake of Psycho 2, let's just go fucking crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see that version. With Mary, though, again, we're assuming Julianne Moore's the mother. We had to have a redhead. So, ooh. Okay. I'm going to throw something out there. And I don't think it would be good. If you say Bella Thorne, I'm going to shoot I was going to say Bella face. Thorne! <laughs> I was going to say Bella Thorne! <laughs> no. Go to your corner. You are excused from the game. You don't get to play anymore. <laughs> because I think that she would have the same acting ability as Meg Tilly. <laughs> oh, God. Norman, um, what's we- wrong? Oh, my God. Hello, <laughs> mother. <laughs> Terrible. Could what's her name? Lady Bird. Uh, oh, Sir Ronan. Uh, I'm, I know yeah. her name, but I refuse to say it out loud. So I'm going. Oh, to I know. I'm like, let me uh, put a bunch of marbles into my mouth, and I'll try to pronounce her name. Is like, Sersha Shryer Ronan. It's Sersha. It's S U R S H A. That's how you pronounce it. Sersha. All right. What about her? What about what about Allison Williams? For, for no uh, I would, <laughs> uh, I would be fucking down. Wait, wait, wait. I know Joe hasn't seen it, but Michael, have you seen The Perfection yet? I haven't. Well, it doesn't come out to Netflix till May, but it's on the festival circuit. But it's great. Seek it out. And Allison Williams is great. All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. My body's ready, as the kids say. Or the other version is you go the Jordan Peele route and you just direct cast this with all black cast members. And you're just like, nope, fuck your whiteness. Mm, I'm not mad at that. No, I think it's totally fine. But, again, it's a direct sequel to Psycho, so we're just going to ignore the fact that Vince Vaughn and Julianne Moore played these roles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Correct. Uh, I was going to say, that would be the most Gus Van Zandt choice of all. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, Vince Vaughn, to me, is still the weirdest casting decision that I feel like you could have made. Um, he did answer my question of what it would be like if I had to sit and watch Norman Bates masturbate. Oh, God. Y'all, I'm going to say something controversial. I don't think that movie's great, obviously. I find it hard to even say any kind of critique about that movie because it's literally the exact same movie except for that masturbation scene. But I like Vince Vaughn's Norman Bates. I don't really actually even have a problem with the fact that the Gus Van Zandt version exists. I know it like raised a lot of ire, but I, I never felt like it even had anything to do with the movie. It's like a Warholian exercise. Mm-hmm. It was not that he's remaking Psycho. It was the idea of remaking Psycho. Yeah. He didn't care about the content of the movie. He cared about the exercise of doing it frame for frame. Like I think that to me was like such a avant-garde move that is is weird and strange and that's a very Gus Van Zandt thing to do. Gus Van Zandt is not interested in making like a blockbuster movie. No. So there's got to be an interest. There had to be like some weirdo reason that he did this. It's probably the closest that will ever come to your other point where you said 
you know, most of the time movies are being made for the purposes of making money. Whereas I think in this case, it was probably Gus Van Sant being like, sure, I'm going to riff on this known entity, but also I'm just really intrigued by the exercise of filmmaking a shot by shot of this classic. Well, and that's the thing, because I, I even saw on Twitter today, well, someone replied to me yesterday when I was watching Psycho 2, and they were like, well, the Psycho remake is the worst remake of all time. And I'm like, no, is it though? Like, no. I mean, it's not great, but it's inoffensive. If that makes any sense. Like, I've seen some offensive fucking remakes and that movie is just so like, it's just forgettable. Like, that's all it is. Yeah. I mean, if there's any crime, that's it. Like, I don't really think that he had competent actors. He's a competent filmmaker more than in both cases. I think the real thing is, is did it need to exist at all? Yeah. And it even sounds pretentious to say. I feel weird saying it, but I'm like, it's an avant-garde choice. And I think that the movie exists for the sake of the movie, not the actual movie. Like, it's like that's it's like such an, I don't know. It's abstract and stupid. And like, but I love the idea that he was just like, I'm gonna do this, and it's gonna piss people off, and that's why I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah, I think I'm gonna watch that this weekend. I really want to go back and watch it. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I might go back and watch it. You know what? I'll I'll take the shot by shot remake of this over James Franco trying to recreate leather bar scenes from Cruising <laughs> as like a student film. Sure. <laughs> sure. You mean a weekend with James Franco? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. have you come back for Cruising? <laughs> yeah, well, I, oh, I love someone's been, we've been getting requests for Cruising literally since we started our article series so um we're gonna do it one day we promise whoever you, you are yeah yeah i'm I'll, you know that movie shot at the exact same time in new york as the white uh, village people movie can't stop the music so they were and they were shooting on opposite blocks at most times imagine those two <laughs> which one was getting protested more oh god which one was that no it, it was it was not, it was a facetious question no uh okay well Anything else before I ask Michael about his socials? No. Okay. So yeah, Michael, where can people find you on uh, the internets? Uh, you can find me on most social media platforms under my name at Michael Barati. That's B as in Victor, A-R-R-A-T-I. You can also follow Dead for Filth at Dead for Filth on Twitter and on Instagram. It's available where most podcasts are found. That's it. I'm always lurking around making movies and causing shenanigans. So. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a status update on your short? Will it be playing festivals? I was moving there, I promise. I was going oh, there, okay. but yes. <laughs> uh, so I, I think the short in question uh, you were referring to is The Office is Mine, is a queer horror short that I just finished. Yes, it will be premiering this summer at a film festival uh, sometime, I think, in July. I cannot quite say what festival it is yet, just for reasons that we are waiting for them to fully confirm, but it's a good one, so I'm excited about that. Also, I did recently just direct a segment of the uh, upcoming holiday horror anthology, Death Summer. <laughs> My segment has horror scream queen icon Tiffany Shepis is in it, as well as uh, Jeffrey Reddick, who created Final Destination. Oh, I love so, Jeffrey Reddick. We'll have him on this show one day. I think he's a sweetheart. Yeah, he's so great, and he's just wonderful. He plays uh, Salvation Army Santa Claus in my movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun. Okay, well, um, before we announce what we're covering next week, I'll just do some quick housekeeping. If you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I'm at Beast on my remote. That's the letter B. 
And of course, if you're tweeting about the podcast, be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. And you can also email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. If you do have two seconds, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating. But if you have 30 seconds, please leave us a rating and a review. It's great. Super easy. Just go to your Apple Podcast app and press one of those stars, preferably the five-star button. And if you like what you've listened to and want even more content exclusive content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes each month. Now, you do have to use the link, because since we say words like fuck, cunt, pussy, bitch, and stuff, uh, <laughs> you you cannot search for us in the Patreon search bar. It's real stupid. But yeah, so the bonus content will consist of full-length episode reviews of new horror films. Uh, as of this episode's release, we'll have episodes on Pet Cemetery and Us in there already. In just a few days, you'll have an episode on The Curse of La Llorona. La Yorona. If you. (laughs) So, Joe, what are we covering next week? So, next week, we are going to do 1994 Cemetery Man with Rupert Everett. Della Morte, Della More. Yep, Della Morte, Della More, which I had to Google the translation for. It's from the director of The Good Stage Fright. Listeners who listen to our episode episode on The Bad Stage Fright a couple of weeks ago. But I do want to point out that this movie is not available to stream anywhere. I had to just spend 20 bucks on a DVD. Yes, that is 20 bucks on a DVD on Amazon. So seek it out. Otherwise, you can just come listen to us talk about Rupert Everett. I've never seen this movie. I've heard it's bonkers and great. So please come on this journey with us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the dubbing. Yeah, it'll be great. So... On that, I think we can officially cross out Psycho 2. Yeah, and cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.